Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. All right. Uh, I'm going to start us off with a little bit of prayer. I don't know about you guys, but I could use it. So, yeah, let's dive in. Father, as we uh, gathered here trying to uh, just submit our hearts to you and hear what you have to say, I just, I just pray that you will transform us, you will bring growth, you'll bring some sort of wisdom out of the gibberish that I'm going to share. Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to sit in your presence. I love you. Amen. All right. So uh, Robert's been taking us through some concepts of kind of working on our paradigm for how we understand the gospel, right? Um, But how does the Bible approach the gospel? That's what Robert's been kind of talking about. And and as you know, next week he'll he'll finish up the story. Um, Honestly, this should be the last piece, but that's okay. We're changing things up. Um, As we process the gospel, and we process all these things that Robert's been sharing, there's kind of a lingering question that hasn't really been answered yet. Um, We've we've talked about what is the gospel, but we also need to talk about, so then what, right? Um, And I'm actually intimidated by answering that question, not because I don't have ideas, but because you could easily write a whole book on the then what, and I've got a short amount of time to try to make sense of it. So I feel pretty humbled with trying to do that. Like, I don't know how to do that. So I'm going to give it a shot, though, and share some thoughts. Okay? So if the gospel that many people hold to is this idea that we just need to believe that Jesus died for our sins and now we're all set, if that's, if that's what it is, that's a pretty cool deal. Um, it's kind of like walking past a sample station in Costco. Um, the other day I was in Costco and I saw a sample station. They had some chocolate coconut flavored covered almond things. And so I walked past and I grabbed a couple. Okay, So you take the, the sample, but there's really nothing else connected to it. You check the box, you got the sample. Um, that's pretty easy. I'm not actually expected to do anything further, right? I get to take the sample and eat it. And I don't even have to tell anybody about it. I don't have to buy the package. I can just take the sample and go about my way, right? And, and in some ways, that's kind of how we approach the gospel sometimes. We say, okay, well, I believe in it, so I'm good to go, right? Um, the company would like for me to tell somebody about it. They'd like for me to buy the package, but I don't have to do that. I can just pass the sample station and eat it, and it's good. Coconut chocolate-covered almonds are good, by the way. But I didn't buy the package. Um, 
When we look at the Bible, though, that's not actually what we see. That's not how we see it being presented. Even if we go to the beginning with Genesis 1 and 2, right? The very opening thesis statement of Scripture. What do we see? Well, we see that it's actually full of commands. Lots of them. Such as, take care of the creation. Name the animals. Um, Be fruitful. Don't eat from that one tree. There's a lot of commands in there. It's not just pass the, the sample and move on. There's directives that are attached to this flourishing and this living. And then we get further in, and we see as, as Israel stands in front of Mount Sinai. Now, God had liberated them. He'd redeemed them, right? I brought them out of slavery. But then he says, here's the deal. I, uh, I, I want you to be my people. I want you to carry my name. Is that something you want? And they say, yeah, we're down with that. That's a literal, that's what you see in Scripture. That's what they say, we're down with that. Um, and so then God says, if that's where you're at, if you want to carry my name, well, then that's going to be reflected in how you live. Okay, there's an implication to it. Okay, and then he gives them this, this really cool outline. Uh, It's called the Ten Words, or more commonly, we call it the the Ten Commandments, okay? So we know the Ten Commandments, and then he proceeds to give about 613 real-life examples in their context of how to follow the Ten Commandments. Carry my name, that sounds great, be my people, and then he gives at least 613 different examples of what that looks like. Carrying his name has implications to it right? Okay, so, and just in case you think, well, that's Old Testament that doesn't apply to us, I'm just going to give you an example here that it does. Um, Kim, if I could have the the first slide, we're going to jump to to Matthew 19. We have this story here in Matthew 19. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good things must I do to get eternal life? I want to be in your kingdom eternally. So what, do I, what does that mean? How do I do that? And Jesus says, why do you ask what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, if you want to step into this space, keep the commandments. That's pretty direct. Keep the commandments. Well, which ones, he inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. I see there's a lot of teenagers in here right now. That's probably their favorite one. Um, And and love your neighbor as yourself. You might notice that, uh, if we can go back, Kim, please. Uh, One of those commandments doesn't belong. Which one doesn't belong? Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not one of the commandments. What's Jesus doing there? Okay, well then he says, all of these I've kept. Actually, I kind of find that hard to believe, but okay. (laughs) You never eyed that candy bar in Jackson's, you never told a lie, you never disrespected your parents. Okay. Anyway, he says, all these I've kept. We'll take him at his word. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions 
give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. So what did he do here? Well, the first part of that, it was addressing how we're supposed to love other people, right? When you look at the Ten Commandments, the, the majority, the, the second half, basically, it tells us how to love others. But this next part that he says, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, what's he doing there? The first set of the commandments, the first few, tell us how to love God. And he's saying, this is the current God in your life. Are you willing to set it aside and put me first? Right? So literally, by doing this, he gave him a real-life example in his context of following the commandments. We have to love God, love others. They're interchangeable. You can't separate them. If you don't have the ability to love others, we just went through 1 John and he made it clear. If you don't have the ability to love others, then you don't have the ability to love God. And if you don't have the ability to love God, Honestly, you don't really truly understand the depth of love, okay? That's what he's doing here. He still says, if you want to have life, there's implications. And he gives some real-life examples of what that would look like in this guy's life, okay? And then, after you've done that, come follow me. Submit to my authority as your leader. Come follow me, okay? It was not a call to just say Jesus is good, but to actually attach his life to the wisdom and leadership of Jesus. Every spring, I teach a class for sophomores. The fall, I have all the seniors. We do biblical interpretation. In, in the spring, I have all the sophomores, and we do a class called Life of Christ. You can guess what it covers. The, the generally chronological version of Jesus' life with heavy focus on his teaching. Um... It's interesting because partway through life of Christ, I have lots of students that are really confused because they'll say, well, I thought it was just faith alone. That's it. I just need to have faith. But what you find when you look at Jesus' teachings is he is constantly telling them there's implications to the faith. You actually have to live it out. And if you can't live it out, you don't actually have faith. Jesus says that over and over and over again. It's, it's not um, legalism, that's not the point, but what we do reveals the condition of our heart and where we've placed our faith, right? Okay, so guess what I'm going to talk about today? We're going to break the rules of table fellowship. You know, when you sit down at the table with somebody, there's two things you're not supposed to talk about, and that's what? Religion and politics, right? Such a bummer. Two of my favorite topics. Just take right off the table. Um, well, we're going to talk about both of those today. And you can't leave. I've got the microphone. Okay? All right. So if we're going to talk about faith. We have to really understand what the concept of faith is. What does that word faith mean when you encounter it in your Bible? When, when you think of the word faith, I'm going to guess that most of you have been given this idea that faith means I believe. Right? Does that sound familiar? I believe something, so I have faith. Um, I believe something is true. Is that faith? And I can see how we get there with the English. 
But if you slow down and think about it for a second, that's actually not a perfect connection. Um, if I was to tell you it's kind of cold outside right now, you'd believe me that that was true. But would we say in English that you put your faith in that? Probably not, right? The word faith has a deeper meaning than that. So we have to wrestle with that, okay? Um, if we look at faith with regard to Jesus, um, if you say, I believe that Jesus is real, that statement's actually not as phenomenal as you might think it is. Um, going back to the life of Christ, the very first thing we do as soon as the semester starts is we go through, I, I give them this lecture, and I'm sure you know how much students love lectures, right? We go through this thing where I, go them, I show them slideshow after slideshow after slideshow of all these historians writing right after the time of Jesus. Uh, Greco-Roman historians, Mesopotamian historians, Egyptian historians, Jewish historians, none of whom are on board with Jesus. And guess what? It takes a whole class to get through all the different things that they tell you about Jesus. This poor, relatively obscure, really crazy, couch-surfing teacher in Israel. And yet he's heavily documented. Do you realize how few people were writing in the ancient world? Do you realize? But yet this random obscure teacher is documented all over the place. Now I don't have time to give you the whole class on it. Um, and I will tell you though, the assignment that's attached to it is they write a paper for me talking about all the things we know about Jesus before we even open our Bibles. There's enough out there for them to write a paper. Okay, that's a pretty crazy idea. So we're just going to look at a couple really fast um, just to give you a, 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 a glimpse. Okay, so we've got Lucian of Samosota, which is modern-day Turkey. He was, he was a really well-known Greek lecturer, teacher. He lived A.D. 115 to 200, so relatively close enough as far as history is concerned. And he has this writing called The Death of Peregrinus where he refers to the founder of Christianity as the one whom they still worship today, the man in Palestine who was crucified because he brought this new form of initiation into the world. Moreover, that first lawgiver of theirs persuaded them that they're all brothers the moment that they transgress and deny the Greek gods and begin worshiping that crucified teacher and living by his laws. That actually sounds like a decent description of Christianity, doesn't it? And this is from a guy who doesn't even like Christians. You can actually take a lot out of that statement if you slow down and think about it. There's a lot that's packed in there. Let's do the next one. Um, okay, Tacitus, one of the most important historians when it comes to understanding Roman history. If you know about Julius Caesar, you primarily know about it because Tacitus told you. Okay, he's significant. And he was uh, writing, um, he lived from A.D. 56 to 120, right after Jesus, right? Okay, so what does he say? He writes, Christians derive their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition, that's what he thinks Christians are, this deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out afresh, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Slow down and read that again. Do you see how many things are confirmed about the Gospels just in this statement? If you believe in Julius Caesar, you've got to wrestle with this. Okay? We're going to do one more. 
Around 175 AD, there's a Greek intellectual, this guy named uh, Celsus, who wrote this book called The True Doctrine. He's attacking Christianity forcefully and trying to make fun of it. In this, he says um, that Jesus' miracles are easily explained. Jesus had gone to Egypt. He learned Egyptian sorcery. Quote, having tried his hand at certain magical powers, Jesus returned from there and on account of those powers gave himself the title God. Think about that one. And I could keep going, but I can tell you right now that history tells you Mary is Jesus' mother. Joseph is his adoptive father. We're not sure where Jesus comes from, but we know it's not from Joseph. They tend to think she was maybe unfaithful. Um, James is his brother. They'll tell you, even though they don't like Jesus, that he's a wise and a good man. Um, he was crucified. The tomb was empty. He was rumored to have risen from the dead. His teachings won't die out the way other people's teachings die out when you kill them. These are all things that history tells you. But here's the craziest one. Um, Kim, would you mind putting that last one back up for me, please? Think about this one. He doesn't say that the miracles are false. Do you get that? He can't tell you the miracles are false. He tells you they're magic. Not a shifting of the mirrors and a shifting of the hands. He calls it sorcery. Historians don't deny Jesus' miracles. They tell you they're real and then try to find a way to explain them which is crazy because 2,000 years later, that's probably one of the biggest pieces we want to deny about Jesus. But the people living at the time tell you it happened. Sorry, you might not like it in your post-enlightenment thinking, but that's one of the most solid things we know about Jesus is his miracles, the supernatural things he did. Here's a crazy one. I don't have in a slide, but a, a Samaritan historian um, who was alive at the time Jesus was crucified even tells us that the sky went dark when Jesus was crucified. Now, he tries to find some other excuse as to why it must have happened, but he specifically connects it to Jesus' death. You're reading the crucifixion. That's one of the parts you want to throw out as just some sort of crazy exaggeration, yet history says it happened. So if you want to say, I believe Jesus, so do the historians from his day, overwhelmingly. Okay, so your belief doesn't get you very far. Somebody says Jesus is a myth, they're just admitting that they actually haven't looked into it. Now, nothing says he's the, they can't prove that he's the son of God. You can wrestle with that one. But the rest, you'd be surprised what you know before you even open your Bibles. Okay, so to say you believe in Jesus, that doesn't get you very far. In fact, actually, Mark shows you over and over again that the demons believe in Jesus. And I'm going to assume that you're aiming for a little bit of a slightly higher standard than the demons. Okay, so to say that you believe in Jesus, great. Okay. So this one really gets my students' attention. The supernatural. Sorry, that's attested to. Okay? Um, so if it's not just believing, what is it? What is faith? The Greek word under it, the Greek word under faith, when you read faith in your Bible, is this Greek word pistis. It's kind of a fun word to say. Feel free to repeat it. Pistis. I tend to have a bunch of boys sitting in some corner of the room that laugh when I teach them about the word pistis. Um, so how does this word use? How does it get used? Um, okay, uh, can I have the next one, please? So these are a couple examples of how pistis gets used. King Ptolemy writes in a letter that the Jews that are installed in positions attached to the royal court have to show pistis. Um, King Antiochus 
uh, praises the pistis of the Jews for their allegiance to him during a time of revolt. Um, Antipater is described as having initially shown pistis to Hyrcanus as the one um, who has the claim to the Hasmonean throne. Okay, and you can see a couple others up there. Faith doesn't quite fit there where it says pistis, right? Words like loyalty and allegiance fit there. Faith is not just I believe. Faith is attaching yourself to something with implication to it, okay? Now we've moved faith from just a feeling and a thought process, okay? Now it's moved into the political realm. When you say you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're stating that you've pledged your allegiance to him. He's one that you've given your loyalty to. That's what faith means, okay? So while we're wrestling with politics, the emperor who was on the throne at the time Jesus was born, this guy named Octavian, you might also know him as Caesar Augustus, he convinced the Senate to, to make a decree that his father, Julius Caesar, would be um, a god. Well, guess what happens when your dad gets called a god? What does that make you? The son of God, right? And that's how he wants the Romans to see him. That concept of being the son of God, that's political. And then we see the Christians saying that Jesus is actually the one true son of God, right? That's a political statement when the Christians say it. It's not just truth. It is truth but it's political and subversive. The word gospel, euangelion, it's a, it's a political word. It's the good news for Rome of a military victory or that the heir to the throne has been born. That's political. And it describes Jesus, doesn't it? A great victory. The heir to the throne has been born. The word for Lord, the word for Savior, those are royal words that are used for the emperor. When people call Jesus Lord, they're making a political statement, a very true political statement. Okay? If you wanted to show your loyalty to Caesar, so this happens with the Christians because, you know, they're, they're persecuted from time to time through, from Rome. Um, if you decide you're going to stop being Christian and you're going to declare that you're going to be loyal to Rome, they had a process for it. They had a statue of Caesar that would be there, and you're supposed to make a sacrifice in front of this statue and declare... Caesar is Lord. Because you can't declare your allegiance to more than one Lord. They understood that if you're willing to say Caesar is Lord, you're clearly saying, okay, Jesus is no longer your Lord. It's a political statement. We have it documented over and over again. They understand that the, the, there's this foundational belief that the allegiance to Jesus is this fundamental element of the Christian faith. So if you can deny it, well, then you've walked away from the faith. This is all political stuff, okay? Paul and Silas, when they're talking to the jailer in Acts 16, they tell him to place the pistis upon the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Transfer your allegiance from the emperor of Rome to the emperor Jesus, okay? When the Bible describes the proclamation of the good news again and again, it tells us what? that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The early church goes out spreading the word. They don't just leave it at Jesus died for my sins. He does, and that's powerful, but they tell you more. They tell you that Jesus is the Christ. Um, I'm going to guess that you know that Christ is not his last name. Okay, It's a title. 
Okay? In Hebrew, it's Messiah, which means the anointed one. When Samuel goes to anoint David, because David's going to become king, he's not anointing him, saying he's going to go do a couple miracles and do some teaching and stuff, right? No, he's anointing him to be king. That's what it means, be anointed. And the word Messiah in Hebrew, in Greek, becomes Christ. Christ is his title. He's the anointed one, the one declared to be king, the true king, okay? Jesus is the one who is ordained, anointed, to sit at the right hand of God and rule over all. The gospel is a royal proclamation. So why is all this important? Because the announcement of Jesus as king begins to unfold this whole new process where God's heavenly rule is going to break into earth in this unexpected way. His ultimate salvation will come through Jesus in a specific capacity, the one enthroned at God's right hand, He's going to be governing God's new creation work. And that is what he says it will look like as this kingdom is beginning to break in. Okay? I am anointed king. My reign is one where the vulnerable will be cared for. Healing and restoration will take place. And the time is now for real freedom in my kingdom. So God's rescue is more than forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful and important, significant part of it. But the message is actually even bigger than that. We have to include more into it, okay? Deliverance, restoration to God's proper rule over humans. What does his proper rule look like? We'll go back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's a beautiful rule of flourishing where everything is powerful and beautiful and we get to dwell in God's presence. How crazy would it be to take a walk through the garden with Jesus? Talk about an awesome experience. Okay. In the meantime, we still have this renewal process that's taking place. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is king and we are invited into his kingdom. Okay? We're invited into his kingdom and this is what real salvation looks like, an eternal time in his kingdom. Okay. So... If we say that coming into God's kingdom under the reign of God is the big picture of the gospel, the gospel is God's gracious gift of Jesus as king, we're all called to respond to it with a commitment of faith, a commitment of allegiance, a commitment of loyalty to him as king, right? And when one enters the kingdom, when they pledge that allegiance, well, there's implications to it. What does this kingdom look like that I'm stepping into? What does this king value that I've just pledged my allegiance to? What exactly have I pledged my loyalty or allegiance to? Pistis is this outward-facing term. Faith is something you demonstrate through your actions that express your trust, your faithfulness, obedience, and loyalty. Um, in James chapter 2, it says that as a body without a spirit is dead, so is faith without deeds, okay? If your faith doesn't have the actions to reflect it, it's dead. It's not actually a faith. And again, this isn't works-based. That's not the point. It's faith-based. But if you have faith, your life will show it. Your life will bear fruit. We hear that over and over again. Paul tells us constantly, right? 
Look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus comes to them and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. As king, he gives a directive and he expects that his people are going to follow it. You're stepping into my kingdom. This is kingdom living. Okay? Note that it includes activities such as pledging allegiance to Christ through your baptism. That's a public declaration of your allegiance to Christ. And obedience. C.S. Lewis says to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. He tells you how to live. Well, if you trust him, it's going to be obvious because you're going to follow what he says. All right. Now, I've barely scra uh, scraped the surface of this whole kingdom idea. I wish I could go deeper into it, and I hope I didn't leave you too lost with my ramblings. Um, so now we get to go to the second part. What is this kingdom doing? It's great that he's established his rule, but I have lingering questions. Why does God say that he rules, but he leaves so much injustice in the world? Why is there so much evil around me in the world? Um, if he's king, why isn't he doing something? Um, I'm going to warn you, there's so much about this I don't have time to touch. I've got like, what, like 10 minutes left or something. Like, I can't address this whole question here. But let's wrestle with just an aspect of it. What if he is doing something? In John 14, 12, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Did you hear that? They will do even greater things than the things that I've been doing because I'm going to the Father. Okay. Jesus passed his ministry on to us. Do you believe the statement that's up there? Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. That's a crazy statement. Do you believe it? He passed his ministry on to us, the people of his kingdom, and he says we're going to be able to do a greater ministry than he could do by himself mainly because he wants to partner with us in it. Thank God. What a beautiful idea that he actually wants to partner with us. And he says, here's the thing. I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit so that you can continue what I was doing. I had this small ministry where at the best I had about 120 people around me, maybe at most. Most of the time it was a lot less. That's what I could reach. But I'm activating you as my kingdom, empowered by my Holy Spirit, for each of you to go out and continue my ministry. Okay? He says, I've, I've given you the tools. I've given you the wisdom, and I've literally come to show you what it looks like and how to do it. And I told you that I'm going to continue to walk with you every step of the way as you live it out. 
When will he do something? He's asking us, when are we going to do something? When are we going to respond to it? You say there's evil and justice in the world? Yeah, there is. So what are you doing about it? He's called you to respond, right? We know from the beginning that there were two trees in the garden, but as Jesus lets us get a closer look, and we we see that there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and if we walk up and look a little closer at the tree of life, what we'll realize is that it's shaped like a cross. Okay? And so he says, approach the cross and eat from it. Okay? Um, Pledge your allegiance to this process. Live like me. If we live out the cross in the world, can you imagine the impact it would have on the people's lives around us? Be careful who and what you pledge your allegiance to. Daniel and his friends, they wouldn't bow or pray to the gods of the world. They would only pledge their allegiance to the one true God, and they stuck with it. We can see that pledging allegiance to God is not just simply following religious rituals. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He doesn't tell them to get rid of the formational liturgies of their life, but he says the formational liturgies are nothing if you're not actually reflecting the way that I live my life out in the world. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Okay. The rituals are great, but first and foremost, we have to be able to love. Cornell West says that justice is simply what love looks like in public. I recently heard a Palestinian Bible scholar say, um, love is not an excuse to abandon justice. It's an opportunity to pursue justice the right way. What could happen in the world if we were living out the love that Jesus has called us to do as people in his kingdom? What impact could we have? We are called to be the people who carry out God's justice, God's restorative acts in creation. Do you remember how Jesus announces his ministry? He's in Luke 4, he's quoting from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he says his ministry is for. Not to get a bunch of people to go to church and wear really bad Christian shirts and put dumb stickers on their cars. No. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay. Real life example. Let's go to Matthew 25. Here Jesus says, slow down and listen to this one. You've heard it before, but slow down and listen to it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. 
Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. By the way, that word stranger, the Greek word under it is xenos, as in where we get the word xenophobia. It's not talking about the stranger who lives across the street that we haven't bothered to talk to yet. It's talking about an outsider who has dared to come close, a foreigner. Okay? I was a foreigner, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. That one's an interesting one. The rest are are people who are really vulnerable and, and struggling. But prisoners, we have ideas about prisoners, right? They deserve to be in prison, right? Generally, that's what we would think. They've done something wrong. They deserve to be there. But yet he says, are you showing them grace and mercy? Do you catch that? I was in prison and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you as a foreigner or an outsider and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Anybody here want to be in that category? I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, a foreigner, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Lord, When did we see you like this? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me. So it's not even what we do. It's even what we don't do. Catch that one. That one's the convicting one for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. That seems like it's a pretty serious statement, doesn't it? Notice he didn't say in here those people who are going to look perfect, who are going to have perfect attendance on Sunday mornings, those people who are going to wear cross necklaces. None of that was on the list. What does it look like to be people who live in the kingdom? That's an interesting description right there. Here's another challenge for you. Some of us might have political views that might clash with what Jesus just said, which forces us to ask the question, what kingdom do we pledge our allegiance to? That's a pretty big statement, I know. There might be somebody in here who thinks they want to throw something at me for it, but it's the truth. It's what the scripture says. Who is the king that you've pledged your allegiance to? He says, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what my kingdom looks like. If you want to participate 
this is what you need to look like. If you choose to not be a part of it, he says, don't call me king. Actually, he used much harsher language for it. If you don't think this is political, look at the conversations of the world around you. How do we treat the vulnerable people like the poor and the foreigner? How does our culture view people who are in prison and think about how serious Jesus took it? Now, I'd be okay with you saying he was using a little hyperbole there, but hyperbole, as I tell my students in biblical interpretation, doesn't mean you get to dismiss it. Hyperbole just shows you how serious he takes it. Okay? Are you that serious? Plutarch talks about a lawmaker who was asked when justice would come to Athens. And the lawmaker responds by saying, justice will not come until those who are not injured are as indignant as those who are injured. We are called to be willing to step into the shoes of the people around us who are vulnerable. We're called to join them because that's what Christ does, right? He steps into the shoes of the people around him. He gets their dirt on him. That's how Jesus lived. We want to ask God about the injustices of the world and he asks us if they're upsetting us enough that if they're upsetting us as much as they upset him. Throughout scripture, God says, this is what my people will look like. Okay. Again, who do you pledge your allegiance to? What gods do you pledge your allegiance to? Because the gods that you pledge allegiance to will be reflected in the way that you live. The things that you talk about. We don't trust God, so instead we trust political structures of the world. I have to invest in this political party or this candidate. If they don't win, everything's going to fall apart. Is it? I thought God was sovereign. I thought God had it. Can I trust God in that? We don't trust God, so we place our allegiance to our own efforts with regard to work and money. We might experience scarcity, so we have to slave to get money into the bank account which also means we're going to resist generosity. We can't trust safety, so we need national borders and to turn people into others. We don't believe in God's kingdom enough, so we grab hold to another dream. We even go deeper down this path and we grab hold of a view of exclusivity like nationalism. Being a peacemaker and a reconciler is unrealistic. So maybe we might reach for a gun or call for the military to take action in the world. If you read your Bible, you will find that every one of those is an anti-gospel. Okay. I would have loved to have given a lot more practical examples, but unfortunately, I had to leave a lot of that on the cutting room floor. My suggestion read the Sermon on the Mount. In your Bibles, it's Matthew 5 through 7. Go through it. It's not some ideal picture. Jesus never presents it as, this is what the perfect world would look like. 
He never says that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, this is what it looks like to be my kingdom people. And if that's not what we're aiming for, then we haven't pledged our allegiance to him. So I would challenge you to go read Matthew 5 to 7 this week. Okay? One last thought. The Lord's Supper. Communion is not just a way to close out a service. It is actually an act of the kingdom's subversion to the world. Okay? In the early church, they didn't just give a piece of cracker and this little cup of wine or grape juice. It was the central part of worship. It wasn't an afterthought. Okay? Um, and the whole concept was actually structured after the banquet meals that they would have in Rome. Um, the early Christians modeled some parts of it. So let's look at the, the meals that were part of Rome. It would be a big place for social bonding. There were these large banquets. It wasn't this. Big meals. Okay? To attend, you had to be invited. The seating was based on status. Slaves and women would not be allowed at the main table. You know, we have to have our standards. And the elite will eat with the elite, the peasants with the peasants. That's how the room would be set up. And there's going to be two parts to the meal. The first part is an actual meal. Okay? The second part was called the symposium, and it was the time when you drink a lot more alcohol and socialize. But before you move to that part, there was this central piece called the libation. And what would happen is um, the host would lift up a cup in the middle of the banquet, and they would take time to honor the emperor and whatever god they needed to honor at the time. Bless you. Um, okay, so they would pronounce a blessing over the emperor and praise whatever god it was. And then everyone would pass the cup around. COVID. Um, everybody would pass the cup around and drink from it. And this would be participating in the honoring of the emperor and the praising of the generosity of that god. It was definitely a political ritual. I spent some of my formative years growing up in the Lutheran church, and we actually drank from the same cup. They would do superficial wiping of it with a cloth in between each person. Um, somehow we all lived through it. It's probably better for our immune system. All right. When... Jesus conducted this meal for his disciples. He turns the table on these meals. Paul says after they broke the bread, Jesus now took the cup and said it represented his blood. Instead of honoring a Roman god or an emperor, he blessed the Father and then pointed to the wine and the bread as symbols for himself. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that if we take these elements in an unworthy manner, one that does not come from pledging allegiance to Jesus and his ways, with a submitted heart, then we sin against the king. As the sacraments of communion, um, well, it's for everyone, regardless of status. There's no seating arrangements. Not at the Lord's table. Everyone is welcome, and Paul makes that clear. At the Lord's table, all are equal, and all who proclaim the Christ are welcome to come. Talk about political subversion in the kingdom of God. All right.
So we're going to step into communion. Uh, worship team, if you want to come up, that's great. As you go to take the elements, um, come up on the outside and go back to your seats through the middle. As you go to take the elements, this is what I would encourage you to ask God before you consume them. Ask him what parts about your understanding of the kingdom he would like for you to start rewiring. Does that make sense? What parts of believing in him do we need to correct? What parts of it do we make a superficial ritual? What does it look like to be kingdom people? God, as we eat this symbolic family meal together, we pledge our allegiance to you as our Lord, our Savior, our King, and we pray that you will help us to grow into the people who instead of pledging allegiance to ideas, nations, rulers, the gods of the world around us, that we will pledge allegiance to you and your kingdom. And just as you came into the world and you got your hands dirty in the mess that we've made, we ask you to strengthen us and give us the love to reflect you, to be willing to get our hands dirty as we partner with you, reconciling and cleansing the world and building your kingdom. Lord, we love you and we proclaim you as king. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.